Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning and welcome to CounterPoints. As you can see, we're building out the studio right now. So here we are working from home. Emily, how you doing this week? Good. I'm in pajama pants. No, just kidding. But it's great <laughs> to have you back, Ryan. Um, it, was, it was a blast to have Crystal here, but we missed you for sure. Lady, ladies Day seemed like a great show. Um, yes. The bro shows have been fun, but it's yes, it's good to get back on track here. Uh, today, we've got two new people jumping in to the presidential election. We've got Chris Christie and Mike Pence. We're going to talk about that. Got uh, explosive news out of Ukraine. Also, the PGA uh, basically getting taken over by the, the Saudis. We can we'll go into the details of this this shocking deal that emerged uh, yesterday. Uh, Emily, what else we got today? Well, Tucker Carlson is back, so we're going to talk about that as part of the, as part of the Ukraine block. Some interesting stuff going on there. We're also talking about uh, AI, deep fakes, the 2024 election, which does feel like the 2024 election has officially kicked off. And so, of course, so are concerns about generative AI in the election. Um, but Europe is handling them in a different way than we probably will. <laughs> and so, we're going to talk about that. Also, uh, Ryan, you're going to be talking a little bit about Julian Assange. I'm going to be talking a little bit about FBI and the whistleblower to break that down. And we have a huge guest, Ryan, because you scored right. a heck of an interview. Yeah, we're going to have a, an interview later in the show with Imran Khan, who's the populist former prime minister of Pakistan, who is basically currently surrounded in his home in, in Lahore. His party has been the target of one of the most incredible kind of crackdowns that you could imagine since he was ousted in April 2022. Uh, he's he's going to talk about what he thinks the U.S. role was in his ouster, what he thinks the U.S. ought to be doing now, stand up for rule of law and democracy. Uh, you stick around for that for sure. But to start, uh, let's let's play our boy Chris Christie. This is the former New Jersey governor announcing 
that he's jumping into the 2024 race for the Republican nomination. So let me tell you something, everybody. The grift from this family is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Kushner walk out of the White House and months later get $2 billion from the Saudis. $2 billion from the Saudis. You think it's because he's some kind of investing genius? Or do you think it's because he was sitting next to the President of the United States for four years doing favors for the Saudis? That's your money. That's your money he stole and gave it to his family. You know what that makes us? A banana republic. That's what it makes us. So he may get 30% again. I'm not sure. Maybe he'll get more. Maybe he'll get less. But let me tell you what he'll know in 2024 that he had no idea of in 2016. He's in for a fight to get it. It's like a high school theater teacher. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, on the substance, he's not wrong about any of that. And you and you and I have talked about this, and I know you you agree on those points that the that the level of grift represented by that two billion dollar payment from the Saudis to the Kushners immediately after leaving the White House is absolutely extraordinary. Like in in the realm of uh, foreign policy corruption, I can't think of anything bigger than that. You know, doesn't mean that smaller levels of corruption from Romania or from Ukrainian gas companies or whatever uh, are less. Uh, you know, are are not themselves, el- you know, uh, evidence of corruption. But good lord, two billion dollars uh, yeah. to a family that is trying to get back into the White House is just incredible. Yeah, and it's interesting. I know we have a lot of clips, so we have to keep it moving. But just a quick thought is that it's interesting, um, particularly because no other Republican candidate goes after Trump on that question of corruption. They watched everyone else basically try it in 2015 and 2016. And so they're hesitant to wade back into those waters. They don't want to offend Trump supporters whose votes they need. And they also know it's kind of baked into the Trump cake. But as unserious, I think, of a candidacy as Chris Christie's is, that's one of the more interesting things. If this is a kamikaze mission for Chris Christie to exact vengeance on Donald Trump and take him down, um, I mean, the difference between what happened in 2015 and 2016 is that he wasn't president yet. And now this is actually like a grift that happened as president of the United States who campaigned to drain the swamp. Do I think it's a a fatal blow? Not even close. But I do think it's interesting to see Trump um, actually to, to see him actually talk about that. And for people who don't know the backstory, it's not as if Chris Christie has some unique level of, of purity on, on this question here. <laughs> it's that he prosecuted Jared Kushner's father and Jared Kushner paid him back by making sure that Chris Christie's life in the Trump orbit was miserable, blocking him from appointments and, and otherwise undermining him in, during the Trump presidency. And so Christie has always had a feud with Jared Kushner. And so that that's where this is coming from, not any kind of, uh, you know, innate kind of disgust that he might have at, at how MBS uh, spends his bribe money. Yeah, right. And it's not like Chris Christie really has a leg to stand on when it comes to that either. So let's let's roll the next clip from, again, this was Chris Christie's Tuesday night presidential announcement in New Hampshire. Here he is again. Beware of the leader in this country who you have handed leadership to, who has never made a mistake, who has never done anything wrong, who when something goes wrong, it's always someone else's fault, and who has never lost. <laughs> I've lost. You people did that to me in 2016. <laughs> that's good, right? That's, that's yeah. kind of funny. 
He also referred to Trump as a, quote, lonely, self-consumed, self-serving mirror hog um, and said, quote, we can't dismiss the question of character anymore, everybody. If we do, we get what we deserve. Uh, and an, an advisor to the campaign told Mike Allen of Axios that Christie's campaign will emphasize authenticity and, quote, be willing to admit mistakes, be accountable and share why he keeps showing up, even when it seems hard, obviously, for somebody now running on authenticity against corruption and grift. Uh, he might have some Bridgegate explaining to do if anybody really cared about his candidacy. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. But it probably doesn't get to that point. Uh, Trump did not go with the Bridgegate rebuttal. Let's play the response from the front runner uh, uh, for the Republican nomination to the entry of Chris Christie into the race. Let's roll that. And it was about our country and its future. And I wondered what our choice was going to be. We're going to be small or are we going to be big? Okay. <laughs> That's the president, the former president of the United States, <laughs> just winning the meme war left and right. A lot of people online did pick up on Christy repeatedly using the word small. It seemed intentional. I thought the entire rollout from Christy was just sort of cringe and more than I expected it to because uh, more than I expected it to be because he actually when he first became governor of New Jersey, he clearly had some political talent. Um, and, and I mean that in the sense of like politi the political theater, mm -hmm. he wasn't bad at it. You know, he would, uh, he, he really was one of the first people to maximize the power of a viral clip. Uh, at the time it was probably like people pinging it around on listservs, but of him just like laying into teachers unions, uh, it was, you know, the, the political theater part wasn't that bad. This feels like, you know, an 80s hair metal band trying to, you know, stay alive and, and play all the hits um, for, you know, a big boomer concert crowd because it just it's like so badly done. The you know, when he's getting in people's faces and walking over to them, it felt like yeah middle school theater. Uh, yeah, I, I do think of him during his time as New Jersey governor as sort of like a proto Trump. Like mm. he he didn't. He didn't necessarily see Trump coming, but he understood that that's where the energy of the Republican Party was going. And so he and he so he fed them that type of spectacle where he was you know, attacking, attacking the media and attacking his political enemies without any type of hedging, any efforts to, you know, appear like a, you know, a, a, re, a reasonable center who's like going to sit down with the teachers unions and, and going to work something out. You know, he he famously would just yell at the teachers unions in, you know, if, if he was fortunate enough from his perspective to have a teacher come and confront him, he delighted in that. And then, and he would grab the cameras and he would, and he would go after them and the Republican base then would, would celebrate that. But I feel like there's something that Christie can't match when Trump came and kind of topped a proto Trump. Like mm -hmm. if you're proto Trump and you meet Trump himself, it's very difficult for you to kind of up your game to a level that is going to get the same reaction out of the crowd than you can with the headline act. I think that's a really good point. And there's no reason that it'll be different from 2016, I don't think, except for one interesting, perhaps, development, which is that Chris Christie... Uh, some indications point to him really being on a kamikaze mission and saying, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know my political future is in the rearview mirror. 
And what I want to do is take down Donald Trump, as opposed to in 2015, 2016, the guy clearly wanted to work in the White House. He wanted to be yes. uh, a cabinet official. He wanted to be chief of staff. He wanted a, a major appointment. So he couldn't go full kamikaze and totally run against Trump. In fact, what he did was basically kamikaze the rest of the Republican field and go after Marco Rubio. And this is you know, Chris Christie knowing he really had no chance. I think that Rubio debate moment that people remember um, was in New Hampshire. And, and Christie is sort of uniquely uh, suited to the New Hampshire audience, uh, at least in in his performance. I don't know if actually policy-wise he's, he's probably not the best fit, but he is somebody who's like kind of an, an unorthodox coastal establishment Republican that also has this brash um, it, populist energy, but no populist policies. He's just a weird candidate in 2023, but and, and I don't think any of his kamikaze plans seem to be what actually will go after Trump. But to the point about uh, the Kushners, nobody else is talking about that. So uh, I say bring it on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. I actually think Christie gets a little bit too much credit for that debate performance because all he did was point out that Marco Rubio had said the same grammatically awkward line you know, three times within like a 90 second like window that I think the entire audience recognized also. And, and all Christie had to do is kind of just point to the guy tripping over his own shoelaces and be like, wow, what a knockout blow from Christie. It's like, no, the, the guy just the guy just fell over on his face. Uh, Agree. But if he's going to do a kamikaze mission, uh, it, the question is, who's that, who does that serve? Because like you said, he kamikaze himself through the primary electorate serving Trump, hoping that he would you know, could get some type of position within that administration. Now, maybe it's a CNN contributor, some some type of uh, institution uh, or audience that will celebrate a kamikaze mission in the Republican primary. But speaking of kamikaze missions, I think we might have another fighter in the air who is similarly kind of nose diving toward a, a Trump battleship. And that's that's Mike Pence, uh, who, you know, after uh breaking with Trump a number of times. We can put up, I think, a two here. Uh, Pence is filing the paperwork. News that I was actually shocked to see, I think was broken by The Messenger, which is that new kind of Hill knockoff news outlet. Uh, a couple of days ago, they announced that he'd be uh, jumping into the race within two weeks. He has filed the, the paperwork to run. Uh, what's, what's your read on what kind of moment this is for Mike Pence? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So it felt to me like this last week, the Joni Ernst roast and ride event out in Iowa was the kind of unofficial kickoff to the 2024 presidential primary season. And it's hard to always know. It's like uh, the you know quote about pornography, right? Like, you know it when you see it. That's what it is about. Uh, that, that's what it is uh, with primary season. And I feel like it's actually like, you know, you hear people, oh, I'm going to announce they, they launched their pack, they filed their paperwork. But uh, with Christie and, and Pence making their announcements this week, Pence is making his official announcement today. He's, he's already rolled out a video. Uh, He's going to be doing a CNN town hall. It feels like now it's it's really happening. There, you know, Ron DeSantis has been in Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire. Um, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, the Asa Hutchinson. I don't know why I felt compelled <laughs> to mention him there, but it, it does really seem like it's in full swing now. And uh, with with Pence entering this week. Um, it's interesting. In his announcement video, he said, quote, I'll always be proud of the progress we made together, referring to Trump, for a stronger, more prosperous America. 
but different times call for different leadership. I have faith God is not done with America yet. So you see how he, um, his Trump strategy, his Trump messaging strategy is say, I was proud of the administration. Now we're in a different time, need a different guy. And it's definitely not the Christie strategy. It may or may not be similar to the DeSantis strategy. We still don't really know. That's a little preview of how Mike Pence plans to deal with it. I will say for all of the people just quickly wondering why on earth is, is Mike Pence getting into the race, uh, two things. Ben Dominich made a really good point, which is that, um, you know, take Mike Pence seriously when he says he prayed about it and that his, his faith is really, is really real. And if he believes that through prayer, he came to the decision he should run, then that's probably why he's running. And secondly, um, I was talking on Megyn Kelly's show about this, like these candidates are old. Uh, Trump and Biden are old. Mm -hmm. There is an element of a totally unexpected potential situation that could unfold in a year. And then uh, things would be, the race would just be blown essentially wide open if something were to happen health wise. Um, and then you're, you're in the race and you have a real shot at becoming president if everything is suddenly blown open. And there are criminal cases uh, underway that'll, that'll matter too. And, but before we move on to the, the next segment, I did, I did want to ask you one question. I noticed that there, at least one high profile Republican on, on Twitter recently was uh, talking about how excited they were about RFK Jr.'s Twitter spaces. Uh, and I've seen some other kind of populist right enthusiasm around RFK Jr. So I'm curious from your perspective, what would happen if he had jumped in the Republican primary instead? Do you think his numbers would be you know, lesser, equal, or greater uh, than in the Democratic primary? I would say lesser. I think um, the abortion issue would be a real one. I think he would have to talk a whole lot more about um, like the the kind of woke cultural issues that he sort of steered clear and uh, steered clear of because right now he's trying to draw a contrast with Biden, um, and that's really interesting. I don't know, but I, I think there's something also very alluring to a lot of people on the right about the sort of democratic candidate who's running. I mean, mm -hmm. that was the whole Trump thing was that he was trying to appeal to these sort of old school Rust Belt um, Democrats, and he pulled a lot of them over. So I think there's something very alluring about that, too. It, it, that, I think that's probably why there are a lot of people on the right that are like, a, oh, RFK, he's talking about being like a, a 60s Democrat, a Kennedy Democrat. Um, so that's probably part of it from my perspective. Gotcha. All right. So, sounds, sounds right to me. The Washington Post is out with new reporting based on the Discord leaks that the Ukrainians had actually been plotting to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline and, to, and that the United States learned about this uh, conspiracy months before the pipeline was actually blown up. This came from a human source. Tucker Carlson uh, t uh, came back to Twitter with his show. Uh, what's it called, Emily? Tucker on Twitter. Twitter. Tucker. Twitter on Tucker. Tucker on Twitter. <laughs> He's back with, uh, it was his, uh, his first segment that he posted last night and he dipped into uh, this news, roll that here. No one who's paid to cover these things seemed to entertain even the possibility it could have been the Ukrainians who did it, no chance of that. Ukraine, as you may have heard, is led by a man called Zelensky. And we can say for a dead certain fact that he was not involved, he couldn't have been. Zelensky is too decent for terrorism. Now, you see him on television, and it's true you might form a different impression. Sweaty and rat-like, a comedian turned oligarch, a persecutor of Christians, a friend of BlackRock. But don't believe your own eyes. Actually, Mr. Zelensky is a very good man. The best, really. 
As George W. Bush once noted, he is our generation's Winston Churchill. Of all the people in the world, our shifty, dead-eyed Ukrainian friend in the tracksuit is uniquely incapable of blowing up a dam. Well, a former Air Force officer who worked for years in military intelligence came forward as a whistleblower to reveal that the U.S. government has physical evidence of crashed non-human-made aircraft, as well as the bodies of the pilots who flew those aircraft. The Pentagon has spent decades studying these otherworldly remains in order to build more technologically advanced weapon systems. Okay, that's what the former intel officer revealed, and it was clear he was telling the truth. In other words, UFOs are actually real, and apparently so is extraterrestrial life. Now we know. In a normal country, this news would qualify as a bombshell, the story of the millennium. But in our country, it doesn't. And I think what's really interesting there is you see him tying this extended argument about the Washington Post Discord leak reporting on on Nord Stream. Um, and as Sagar points out, we can put up uh, B3 here. Sagar points out, you you look at that and you see that we were basically, our, our government knows all of this. Sagar says, let's this sink in. The Biden admin had intel that Ukraine had a plot to blow up Nord Stream and still lied slash tried to insinuate that Russia was responsible in real time. So we've had you know months of deception basically from our government at this point. And Tucker then ties that. Um, his monologue starts with Ukraine and ends on UFOs. It's about 10 minutes long. It's on Twitter if folks want to check the whole thing out. And he has a line where he says, even a yak herder in Tajikistan knows who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, and he's drawing contrast between American audiences and everyone else in the world. He's like, the American people might be the least informed in the world at this point. Um, because when you look at how our media reacts to just like an incredible revelation about uh, alien life forms in our government, when you look at how our media reacts with a kind of a shrug um, as our our presidential administration uh, initially was was really deceptive. In fact, they actually said it was a crazy conspiracy theory at first uh, in an echo of the lab leak uh, narrative. It was a crazy conspiracy theory that Ukraine may have had anything to do with this. So I, I thought it was a pretty interesting piece of argumentation from Tucker. I thought the show looked good. What did you think, Ryan? Yeah. The, the, so, I mean, let's let's take the Ukrainian piece first. This is this is fascinating reporting coming out of these these discord leaks. Uh, and it's interesting that the Washington Post kind of held back the country uh, that initially discovered this intel and then shared it with the United States. The United States then shared it with its its German partners and others, because if it's in the discord leaks, presumably you would think that other foreign intelligence operations, including the Russians, already have access to it. So you can kind of withhold the country's name from the public, but I'm not sure what good that's doing. From, you know, from a from a counterintelligence perspective, but what's interesting is that they are, there are some real specific details about, that they list about this Ukrainian operation. They say they're going to be kind of six operatives. They're going to rent a they're going to rent a yacht, uh, and then they're going to go out and use submersibles uh, to blow it up. Now, it, it, according to the German investigative uh, reporting, it was there were six uh, people who rented a yacht, uh, and they they dove, which is I don't know if that's what they mean by submersibles. There was there was a reference to helium uh, being used by both because it's such a, a deep dive that you need, you know, helium to you know maintain clarity and all, and to keep keep your safe at, at the that that level of depth. And so the the idea that and oh they also said that they were going to do it around this June operation uh, where there were there were you know a naval operation uh, that didn't happen. There was some speculation in the article 
that they learned that their operation had been compromised and had been had been leaked. And so they they postponed it, but these but it was still done right around a giant naval operation. So basically all of the details uh, that the intelligence community had before the operation was carried out actually panned out. One point though, I'm curious for your take on this. This would undercut Seymour Hersh's reporting in the sense that he reported that it was this, you know, this crew of Americans out of, you know, working out of the, the this, this school in the Gulf uh, that carried it out. My guess would be what Hirsch learned about was a a plan that was trained for, uh, but ultimately not carried out, and instead this Ukrainian operation uh, was carried out. But I'm curious what what you think about the way that this conflicts a with everything the intelligence community has said publicly. You know, they had that leak to the New York Times to try to counter Seymour Hirsch, but it also does conflict with uh, Hirsch's reporting. Mm, That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it. And folks can watch our uh, whole interview with Seymour Hirsch from shortly after that uh, bombshell was published uh, not too long ago. But I've always thought uh, with with his report that it, it may be through the telephone chain uh, official affiliations are getting confused or are getting um, intentionally obfuscated and hard to totally pin down, which I think gets us to a, obviously one of the biggest problems with this entire war is that uh, we don't know what our country's involvement in operations like Nord Stream, like um, anything that's being used inside of Russia in Moscow, depend. De- Regardless of what our government t- says, it's hard to trust what our government says. They don't seem to know um, the extent to which our personnel and our equipment is being used. So, and things that we've sold Ukraine are being used. So, I- I've always wondered if there was more, if there were just like affiliations that were already loose when you're using maybe mercenaries, um, and it's unclear where the money, or the support, or the go ahead was given. I-, I don't know. I think maybe that's possibly an explanation. And as as for uh, Tucker's show, I, I I think he's right that it's wild that there isn't kind of wall to wall coverage of this whistleblower uh, intelligence community allegation that the U.S. has in its pre- in its possession uh, al- basically alien aircraft. Like, and the, some of the report some of the reporting you know seems to confirm that. Like that that to me is shocking. Like that is something that I would expect we would be covering wall to wall. Uh, on his uh, on his show itself, just as a person who's involved in progressive media, it's it's intimidating, you know, how dominant the right is getting when it comes to the media ecosystem. How many views does this sucker have by now? Probably fifty million, or or, or may, maybe far more than that. This that comes after uh, the you know, "What Is a Woman" uh, documentary got, good Lord knows how many uh, you know viewers on Twitter. Even if you think that they're ca- counting is an order of magnitude off. You're still talking about millions and millions of people, uh, you know, gobbling up this content. Uh, and the progressive kind of media ecosystem is just not, even if you include CNN and MSNBC in that, uh, which I wouldn't, <laughs> but even if you do, it's not even remotely comp- comparable. Do you, f- can you, on, on the right, do you like kind of feel uh, a, a burst of energy uh, when it comes to audience that that wasn't there before, or is this kind of manufactured through the, the hostile takeover of an algorithm? 
I think independent media has a burst of energy, not so much conservative media, if that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. I just checked the Tucker video does have, according to Twitter's numbers, 61.7 million views. So that's about 12 hours uh, in, in about 12 hours. And I, it may be orders of magnitude off. It may just be when people scroll still through be a video. one million, right? Right, which is higher than his audience on Fox News. And I think that 10-minute format is smart. It's really targeted. You can write a really sharp, clever monologue. I thought the writing in the monologue was was excellent just from like a, a the art of writing standpoint. Uh, sort of very typical Tucker. He's a great writer and uh, he has good writers on his staff. So I think that's where um, he, I, I think the format is, is very he found a format that's going to work very well for him. But I also think it's a, it's true that like real leftist media, meaning like actual, you know, qu- critical of our foreign policy, um, critical of the economic consensus leftist media, it's it's sort of like similar to where conservative media has always been. Like there's just, there's not a ton of like money and energy behind that in, profession, in the professional political class. But what's interesting is that the establishment media, the legacy media is so culturally um, leftist now, I shouldn't say leftist, so culturally progressive now that it's, it's the, it's created the lane. And when I say culture, mm-hmm. I don't just mean on the sort of woke agenda, because yes, they're they're uh, really far to the left when it comes to a lot of those things. But um, also just in like censorship issues, like they're completely pro censorship, they're pro like X, Y, and Z. And that creates the lane for a Matt Walsh to come in. That creates the lane for a Tucker Carlson to come in. And then those are the same people in legacy media who decry populism. And all they do is empower populists by giving them very real ammunition. So you can't like complain about Tucker having a 60 million video viewership in 12 hours uh, when he is basically right on the substance of the question that you're not doing your job very well if you aren't wall-to-wall coverage about uh, government's lies on UFO craft and government's lies on, um, you know, this entire Nord Stream bombing and the entire war, really. And and Tucker uh, had a really interesting kind of inversion of a Bernie Sanders line at the end of end of his uh, monologue, which uh, people can find it's around the like nine and a half minute mark or so, where he says something like, "Don't ask why we're all so rich, uh, go worry about racism," which is essentially out of kind of left wing populism over the last 150 years. That the argument is that uh, you know uh, race and racism itself was kind of constructed back. Uh, in the 16th, uh, 17th century in order to, uh, you know, uh, allow elites to divide the, the working class in a way that would allow them to, to rule over them. He's sort of using it from a slightly uh, different angle. He's arguing, he's arguing that I guess there isn't, ra- there isn't racism. And so the elites are saying, look, there is racism. So you need to fight about the question of whether there is racism. But it's fundamentally the same point that he's making mm-hmm. that that uh, that has been made for you know hundreds of years by people on the left saying that that, that it's a it's a tool that the ruling class uses to kind of divide uh, everyone underneath the the rule the ruling class and that is was that an, an iteration and an evolution at all of of uh, his his politics that he's edging closer to that or do you think that there's there's been a kind of uh, an element of that from the beginning. The speech he gave at the Heritage Foundation um, right before, and reportedly this may have had some impact on Rupert Mur- Murdoch's thinking. Um, he, he made a speech at the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary gala uh, 
the Friday before he got canned on a Monday. And he talked like very honestly about his ideological evolution, um, going from sort of more libertarian to now more of like populist conservative. And yeah, I think that absolutely represents an evolution in his thinking. Um, and I wish the, again, speaking of how there's like a lane created it, I actually really wish that the left talked more like that. And I think the right is, needs to internalize and learn the lesson too about how the ruling class uses those questions to distract because they're they're actually still they're using like very real concerns people have about what their children are being taught in school um and and using it as fodder to just create complete distractions that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that people on the right or the anti-woke left center whatever shouldn't talk about that at all i mean it yeah. doesn't invalidate those concerns but it is important to recognize um, that there, there does there does need to be a balance because there is a balance for your average voter, your average person who, you know, relies on uh, the media, the political class, the political universe uh, to create a safe and prospering society. Well, let's let's move on to this incredible, basically, takeover of golf uh, by Mohammed bin Salman. Now, it's being reported as a merger between uh, the P the PGA and Live Golf, which is the, the Saudi-funded rival that went around and was poaching a whole bunch of uh, players in order to create like a rival tour, you know, massively o overpaying them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, with the idea that they're going to, you know, create this competition, the PGA Tour was uh, responded by saying, basically, these are terrorists. Uh, you know, you've never had to apologize uh, for being part of the PGA, you're going to have to apologize constantly if you're part of the Live Tour. If you do, that you're a complete sellout. And uh, and then uh, next thing you know, uh, PGA Tour is selling out itself. So if you look at if you look and and Ben Walsh there has some of the details of the contract. The PGA will still technically have the kind of voting majority on the board that governs this, but the Saudis through their uh, what their sovereign wealth fund will have the exclusive right to invest. In other words, they will own it. Like they are the owners. And so what does it even mean at that point that the PGA players have a voting membership if it's completely funded and owned uh, by, by the Saudis? This seems like a, just a complete victory uh, for them as far as I can see. What's your read on it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the memes on this were incredible. First of all, who knew that golf Twitter was so funny? Not me. Um, <laughs> and, and speaking of which, speaking of Twitter, let's roll the next element. Let's just put C2 up here. Uh, this was a, a pretty interesting take by Senator Mike Lee. Um, where he said the PGA golf tour is buying Saudi backed live golf tour. It looks like a long established dominant incumbent is inquiring a nascent competitor, one that has been challenging its dominant position. So there you see, um, a, a counter argument from actually an antitrust angle, <laughs> which is pretty interesting too. Matt Fuller, then we can put the next element up here as we roll through a lot of the uh, amusing reactions, had this great tweet where he's like doing this transcript of a, a conversation between Saudi Arabia and the PGA Tour. Hey, PGA golfers, we have a bunch of money to offer you for a new league, PGA. You're ruining the game and sports washing your reputation of human rights abuses. Okay, but what if we offered you a lot of money, PGA? Today, we'd like to announce a merger. <laughs> yeah, basically. And then uh, there's just an incredible uh, confluence of events here. So we can put the next element up. This is uh, a Wall Street Journal story about uh, Secretary of State 
uh, Antony Blinken, he goes to Saudi Arabia and we're reportedly he's going to say that human rights are in the, are, are, he's going to take up the issue of human rights with the Saudis, which of course is what the Biden administration wants to posture as. We'll see how substantive that ends up being. And then uh, finally, this is maybe my favorite element of the story, C5. We can put this tweet up. Um, this is a tweet from Timothy Meads of a Donald Trump truth from what, yeah, July 18th, 2022, where he basically predicted this. <laughs> This is pretty crazy where he said all of those golfers that remain, quote, loyal to the very disloyal PGA and all of its different forms will pay a big price when the inevitable merger with Liv comes and you get nothing from, but a thank you from PGA officials who are making millions of dollars a year. Ryan, my question to you is Trump's, uh, there's nobody who knows corrupt business uh, deals better than Donald Trump. <laughs> is this not him just having the perfect experience to predict the moment? This was entire. This was crystal clear to him. Like, and he, I, he, from his perspective, he probably couldn't see how other people couldn't see where this was going. He's like, "What part of this don't you guys understand?" Like, they have an enormous amount of money that they're willing to spend. People like money. They will eventually take the money, and they will own you. And I like the way that he. Well, like isn't the right word for it. The way that he uh, addresses love, right? The way that he addresses the players who were trying to take a stand against this is is just amazing saying like look you guys are the fools uh because you're eventually going to be in the pay of mbs anyway uh and all you're not even you're all you're going to get is a uh, pat on the head from the pga while the pga is eventually going to sell out take the money uh, all these other players that are selling out are going to take the money and you're still going to end up working for the saudis but just at the same pay or maybe even less uh than you're getting now and uh, tragic as it is, that turns out to have been, you know, basically 100% correct. So we have now Antony Blinken going to Saudi Arabia. And Ryan, you know these, you know this particular issue area very well. Of course, the Biden administration wants to posture, and they got their W, they got their Wall Street Journal headline, uh, assuming this is the one that they wanted. As Blinken visits Saudi Arabia, human rights are back in focus. Subheading. Biden officials have pushed the Saudis to lift travel bans on American citizens. So Blinken is prepping to uh, visit Saudi Arabia this week and prepping a, a human rights message to the Saudis. Uh, how confident are you that that actually comes to fruition in a substantive way? Uh, not very, because as you saw, uh, MBS jack basically jacked up gas prices right, right ahead of the announcement of the, of the PGA takeover. So it's it's almost in, inaccurate to say that the Saudis uh, are are buying P PGA. We are buying the PGA, you know, with the money that we're putting into our gas tanks and then sending over to MBS that he's then using to buy uh, PGA. And he's restricting uh, oil production in order to drive up gas prices to help offset the tiny amount that he's going to spend for the PGA. So Blinken is going to have that that he's going to have to negotiate. He's all he's also going to be pushing. He said for uh, MBS to release a, a bunch of American residents, you know, who are being, who are not allowed to, who are being kept illegally in the country. Uh, so a lot of them for uh, social media posts on a social media platform that Saudi Arabia is a, is a significant owner of Twitter. You, you, you constantly see new, new stories of people uh, being arrested and uh, sentenced to in, insanely long sentences uh, for something that they said on 
on Twitter. Um, a significant number of those are American residents or American citizens. And so Blinken is going to be taking up their cases. So those are those are a couple things he's going to have to push. Meanwhile, they're pushing an, an, a cruel and absurd uh, Yemen policy while they're there. And that is probably the real driver of, of Blinken's visit, which is to try to undermine these talks that are uh, ongoing directly uh, between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis, because the U.S. says that they want a kind of, quote unquote, U.N. brokered peace. And by U.N. broker, they mean a huge, a huge role for the United States in the in those talks. Uh, we, the U, U.S. is uh, deeply concerned about the fact that China was able to, and we've talked about this before on the show, that China was able to reach this kind of detente uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and as a result, you wound up with these with these peace peace talks progressing. So Blinken is going to try to make sure that those peace talks jump from there over into basically a U.S. brokered situation that would. Then uh, the U.S. hopes, you know, continue to give them access uh, to the Gulf of Aden, which is, you know, controls something like 40 percent of of the maritime economy, all, you know, oil and shipping all flows uh, through there and into the into the Mediterranean. Uh, so that's that's really what's going on. And so, uh, you know, how much of a role is our human rights going to play into that? Uh, we'll see. And what do you make, lastly, of Mike Lee's antitrust uh, argument in this case? I, I mean, I guess it's funny. Uh, you know, it'd be funny if uh, Lena Khan, FTC chair, was able to come in and say, "You know what? Actually, we're not going to allow this. We we want more competition in our in our golf leagues." Uh, I don't I don't see that happening. And also, it doesn't. He had to kind of contort what really happened uh, in order to make it fit his uh, his kind of joke there. Because it doesn't actually seem like the incumbent dominant uh, player acquired uh, an upstart competitor. It seems like the upstart competitor acquired the incumbent. Right. Uh, but whatever, Clo like close enough for the close enough for a joke. It, it's close enough for a joke, and it also is true that you have these like two, whether or not it's a, an upstart, like two hugely mm -hmm. uh, p groups that have a, a big swath of the market um, joining right. each and, other up. And people probably know this, but like the NFL, Major League Baseball, those types of entities have carve-outs to antitrust policy like written into law. Like they are legally allowed to operate illegally. Like the, and in, in order uh, to have that cartel, uh, you know, to have this monopoly on baseball, the, we're, we as a public are then able to uh, regulate a baseball and football and basketball in ways uh, that we otherwise uh, wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been. We have some breaking news. Uh, Chris Licht is out at CNN following that devastating Tim Alberta profile in the Atlantic. Uh, Emily, what is your reaction to this extremely short tenure of the new CNN head? Chris Lick's tenure at CNN was always fascinating because he came from Stephen Colbert and he was producing the heck out of that Stephen Colbert show to where it was both the least funny show in late night and uh, the, the most highly rated show in late night for a long period of the Trump administration, a very far cry from the Johnny Carson days in the same way that CNN 
during the reign of Jeff Zucker was a very far cry from the version of CNN in the 80s and 90s and the aughts when it thrived as a news network that people saw as truly being kind of down the middle. It was the only place that could really pull off hosting a show like Crossfire. And Chris Licht desperately wanted to restore that, which is funny because when you're tapping Chris Licht for this job, um, he was producing Morning Joe. He was a very successful sort of mastermind of what happened over at Morning Joe in the early days of that show. That's a very niche product. Colbert is a very niche product. And so on one hand, he really knew the market. He knew that because corporate press is dying, uh, that what it needs to do is corner these very particular niches. But in that sort of direction, he, he never seemed to know then how to implement that. He, in the Tim Alberta profile, is repeatedly shown as straining to get his staff um, to be on board with his mission of what's derided in the press now, both sidesism, you know, having Republicans on your air and giving them room, you know, giving them tough interviews, but like actually letting them on air and letting them say things you may think are horrible about the election, but at least letting them say that so that you can grill them and you can have the contrast. That's what Chris Licht really wanted. Um, so I actually, my contrarian take is I probably would have kept CNN Plus. Um, because I think, you know, the, the future is in that space, definitely not on the, the sort of airwaves. And I, I think I'd, I never would have sat for that Tim Alberta profile, which was unbelievable. And it seemed like Licht had long been protected by a good relationship with uh, Zaslav. And uh, maybe that has come to an end in the light of the Alberta profile. But just a lot of fascinating, I think, failures of people to reckon with the new media atmosphere in which audiences desperately want independent news, but that doesn't mean they want people to lie to them and say they have no biases. Um, and that's what CNN wanted to do. It wanted to get people up there with a straight face, like with Caitlin Collins and Donald Trump and say, I'm just going to be right down the middle here and then you know, be fully from the left. And it seems even in the way that you're describing it, that it was just a fundamental contradiction that, that couldn't be worked out because he wants to do two things that are in conflict. One, he wants to bring back CNN, you know, to its glory days when it was, you know, uh, trusted by tens of millions of people across the political spectrum. Yet he also understands that that doesn't exist anymore, and that the, the spot for that type of media is a niche market. And I don't. And sometimes the, the smartest people on the planet will get themselves stuck in these fundamental contradictions that can't be worked out, and then just frustrate themselves endlessly because their their intelligence and their hard work just can't seem to uh, unbundle this contradiction because it just simply can't be unbundled. If I were given Chris Lick's job and said, all right, you need to fix CNN, what I would actually do is I would have gone to Crystal and Sager mm -hmm. and be like, I want to hire you guys. And I want to, I don't want to produce kind of left, right, but not crossfire television all day long. No centrists. We're getting like centrists can come on as guests just because we want to hear what these kind of zoo creatures have to say about <laughs> their view of, of politics. But but we're not going to try to pretend like we have some magical center that we're going to channel uh, and be trusted by everybody. What I'm going to get is some people you like, some people you don't like, and you can hear from all sides uh, and and see and see if that works. I think I still think there's actually an opening for a mass media uh, that that does that, whether it can do that and be trusted on a corporate platform uh, remains to be seen. Although 
there are so many different platforms now. Like you said, it's it's streaming, it's cable, it's you know, their their clips are on YouTube. We're on we're on YouTube. YouTube's a corporation, uh, so you know the, the jury's out on on that. But that's 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 the route I would have gone. Also, would not have sat uh, with Tim Alberta for a fifteen thousand word Atlantic profile and taken oh, him to the gym and whatever else he did. Right. He took him to the gym and said, quote, Zucker can't do this shit when he was lifting. It's just like my favorite thing right. I've ever seen in a profile that somebody, you know, willingly sat for. And and that just brings us to, I think, one of the the other fundamental parts of the story, which is no matter how badly you want to kind of restore some of these institutions, they are we're actually talking about this in the next block too, because it relates back to that fantastic story you wrote last year. Um, when you raise a generation or two of people with this, um, eh, I don't know, this idea that people need to be protected from uh, bad uh, arguments, like they actually need protection from bad arguments. You can't trust the public to deal with those bad arguments. Well, that's baked to CNN's cake now. And even as the CEO Chris Licht could not deal with that. He couldn't like actually control employees who said, I don't want to have Republicans on our airwaves. I don't want to air these arguments. I don't want the contrast. Um, Chris Licht was never able to like actually fix that, even as the top guy at the company. Uh, and I think that's a huge takeaway when people say, you know, some of the stuff, the pendulum will just swing back. Well, no, because there are a whole lot of especially younger people who for whom these ideas are really central to their worldview and uh, to their like self-esteem in so many cases, because it's how they measure, um, you know, whether or not they, they have the right ideas about the world that you're not just going to come in and have Chris Licht bulldoze this like deeply, ba this, this deeply seated ideology that so many people have. It just doesn't work that way anymore. Um, and, you know, even if you look at something like a top podcast, like the daily, that's not monoculture. Like you can't just be like, you know, walking, maybe if you walk into a whole foods, you'll find someone else be like, Hey, did you uh, hear what was on the daily this morning? But and they did, it's like the, I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. But like, it, it's not like that in the rest of the country, there really isn't monoculture anymore. So it's that, that clash between trying to make monoculture with uh, a generation that really isn't capable and also trying to make monoculture when that's not really what you know, the, it's just really hard to do that. Cause I agree with you that the audience does want it, but if you're not willing to like really go there, you're not gonna be able to do it. Yeah. Rough ride for Chris Licht. He's been put out of his misery. Uh, stick around. Uh, we'll be back with more right after this. A story in the New Yorker by Emma Green profiling the arc of FAIR, a group uh, that was started by Barry Weiss and some other sort of uh, dissident people on the, the right and the center, maybe a few on the center left. Um, the, the arc of FAIR uh, became fodder for this fairly interesting New Yorker story. And the story reminded me pretty immediately, actually, of uh, Ryan's story from last summer in The Intercept that was also very, very viral um, and especially viral in sort of D.C. and, and Beltway circles about how uh, it, ideology has paralyzed um, a lot of nonprofits on the left. The story in The New Yorker was really about how even uh, anti-woke uh, an anti-woke group, fair in the the words of some of the people that were really involved 
um, was supposed to be kind of a, a counterbalance to the ACLU, like an idea of a group that could really stand up for civil liberties where you see them coming under siege, I would argue correctly, uh, that, that I would argue that they're correct, that uh, some civil liberties have come under siege by I mean, the, I don't want to call it woke ideology, but that sort of far left, uh, I don't even know, Ryan. How do, Ryan, how do you describe it? Like, what's a better word than woke? <laughs> I mean, woke kind of gets you there. It uh, does. It's a until shortcut. people until people ask you to define it, and then you go viral because because it, it's hard to hard to pin down. Um, but you know, that's that's kind of it. Um, Weiss herself wrote an essay uh, in was it Tablet? Uh, you know, that kind of inspired this organization in some ways. And the New Yorker, New York, talks about that, and even her description of it. Uh, lumps together, uh, you know, you know, post-modern, post-structural, combined with some, uh, you know, uh, identity politics. It's it's like, it's it's very hard to kind of boil down into a single word. Well, um, you know, it's probably decent if you can uh, take away some of the stigma and pejorative uh, nature of it, because it, you know, it started out as an, uh, as a moniker that people were adopting uh, on their own. Uh, but I, I think there's a couple interesting layers of this this piece that we can that we can disentangle here. Uh, on the one hand, and you and I were talking about this, some of this is just kind of silly naivete among some people that just don't seem to understand how uh, non nonprofits work, and we're frustrated at that. And you see that at so many different organizations. Uh, that's just that is what it is, and that's but that is also the responsibility of good managers. Uh, to work through like it, it i think too many managers think that everybody is just kind of born knowing how organizations work how nonprofits work what nonprofit structures are like and they're and they're not they like people have to learn uh through the process of of doing and through the process of you know interactions with management of these types of organizations and so you can't just throw your hands up and say kids today they just don't have any idea what they're doing it's it's, it's also your responsibility to make the case for why the structure that you have and the mission that you have uh, is working. So that that's that's one side of it. The other is the kind of interesting substantive ideological question at the heart of this piece, which is as they ask it, can you be moderate and be anti-woke? I'd I'd kind of frame it as, you know, what does this kind of world, which we could broadly call anti anti-woke, maybe, stand for? Uh, rather than stand against and and that's the that's the point that uh the one of the co-founders who went on to run the organization was making himself his name's uh uh, byan uh bartning and he didn't want it to be just anti this and anti that he wanted it to stand for something the problem is what he decided it stood for was kind of cringe and silly uh (laughs) pro-human he went with pro-human which i think is not a is not his fault for being unable to accurately message. I think there isn't actually a substantive politics there for him to name because there's so much disagreement within within the space that is coalescing and organizing around the idea of of anti woke. It's like if you're an anti fascist front in uh, in in Spain, let's say uh, you you encompass everybody from the center right to the far left, and so you don't you're you're a front that is against a thing you don't actually stand for all of you don't stand for the same thing 
So trying to so trying to narrow it down is is basically impossible because it's going to eliminate some people who don't agree with certain things. And it really seemed to come to a head around gender ideology. What what was your what was your read on that on that substantive question of of what kind of tore this group apart? Or, That's clearly or, where it crumbled. And, and to your point about anti-pro, I mean, anti is baked into the name. It's called the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And the relevance of the story, again, is that I think Barry Weiss um, admirably had ambitions of this to be something that really counters the ACLU. And it's clearly not headed for that trajectory. It's, uh, it seems to be at this point a, a shell of its former self and a shell of its ambitions. Uh, it had money, we learn in this profile, from Harlan Crow, which some folks will remember from recent stories about the conservative legal movement and Clarence Thomas. It got like a million dollar donation from uh, one high level donor who started to become disillusioned on the group herself, particularly around this issue of sex and gender. And that's what's so interesting about this story is that, um, you know, the intolerance part of FAIR, obviously, I think in, in this climate, I mean, one of the reasons I don't like to use the word woke is because I think it's almost too narrow, that a lot of this is is really broad. These questions about like, what is a woman? That's so much broader than than woke, if you even want to use the, like, Matt Walsh framing. There's so much more going on in that. And I think if you say you're pro-human and you're against intolerance, that's almost just getting to, like, the censorship question. And that gets to the, you know, like, Twitter for a while not letting you weigh in on the issue of, you know, defining or referring to biological women by the biological sex. Twitter says you can't do that. That's an entirely different question, whether Twitter and the government collude to say you can't do that, than whether you should actually morally refer to um, a biological woman as a woman, or if you should go along with preferred pronouns, or if you should say that, you know, people actually really can change their biological sex, or that biological sex is inconsequential. Like, these are completely different questions. And I think uh, part of the problem that the so-called anti-woke movement has is that the censorship question is the gateway um, for a lot of disillusioned people on the left. And then they have to make, you know, Chris Rufo, for instance, was uh, part of this group. So you you have people coming from the, the dissident left and like then they have to make common cause with somebody like Chris Rufo, who, by the way, himself, um, I would argue was pretty much has been center left um, at different points in his life. Mm. And if you can come together on the censorship question, it doesn't mean that you can come together on all of the other questions. And that is probably one of the biggest problems that the so-called anti-woke movement has. Um, and in general, the sort of like, I actually think those that common cause is essential uh, in the same way that I think our common cause on, for instance, like Pentagon funding and um, welfare and all of these other things is essential. But if you if you can't get past that, your advocacy group might not work. <laughs> yeah, and it, it suggests to me that kind of gender ideology is becoming uh, on probably both sides a, a a black hole that has so much centrifugal force that nobody is able to kind of stay out of it and uh, stay out of the question. Because Bartning, he, he argued internally that some of these questions were not properly addressed by, you know, fair advocacy or fair policy. What he would say is we don't support any censorship. Like he would say, if we, we don't, you know, it might be cruel to misgender somebody, but it is not illegal and it should not be uh, banned. You know, so they would, they would, uh, they would oppose that. But when it came to the question of gender affirming care for minors, for instance, he would argue that's not our business. That's, that's up to the, that's a political question 
that ought to be worked out uh, through the political system. And we are here to defend kind of fundamental principles of free expression. We're here to create the playing field on which those decisions can be made fairly by by a population that can that can uh, you know come together and ar- argue it out. Whereas that 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 major donor, for instance, Rufo and others were saying, absolutely not. Like you need to take a stand against uh, against this care. Like that you have that this is an issue uh, that requires uh, your your intervention. And so they uh, they basically went to Barry Weiss and and the other co-founder. Uh, and Bartning, without their knowing it, had made them board members. There were three board members of this New York nonprofit. And when they discovered that they were on the paperwork as board members, two of the three board members, they were like, oh, well, uh, we didn't really want to be on the board here. But now that we are, we actually have the votes. And they just called him into a meeting and uh, and vo- made a motion and booted him out. He then kind of basically countersued saying, if you're going to do board business, you need 10 days. And then it gets, and then it gets into this 10 days notice and it gets into this extraordinarily boring kind of bureaucratic bickering over, but, but which underlies a real ideological fight over the, over the direction of the organization. Um, but I'm curious if you think that that's right, that, that, that organization, that a, you know, an organization that wants to be kind of a, a central right ACLU can't actually do that anymore because it it has to become involved as a fighter in in these battles particularly over over gender yeah i think the aclu benefited from a real social consensus um that started to coalesce in the middle of the 20th century um where where people in in remarkable and beautiful ways had had their their minds changed about certain like extremely important issues and uh the aclu really for you know more than 50 years i think benefited from that version of the country where people had like really come onto the same page about um, racism and the legal system and sexism, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I don't think that the people involved in FAIR would say they wanted a, a center right ACLU. They would say they wanted like a center, like they wanted something that was genuinely mm-hmm. neutral. And that that ambition of neutrality is not only impossible now, but I don't know that it ever, I, I mean, it was maybe possible for a very fleeting moment in world history in the uh, mid-century to um, millennial America. And I just don't see that being possible. Here's a quote. Um, People were afraid, this is from the New Yorker, to voice their disagreement because of how they would be portrayed by Bartning behind their backs, or they feared being fired, disparaged, or other forms of retaliation. So it's like, on the one hand, this may not be, you know, the the big, maybe the narrative isn't super neatly uh, wrapped up in the story because this is deeply, I think, intertwined with personnel issues. Like clearly, mm-hmm. first of all, nonprofit structure in this country is a Byzantine bureaucratic nightmare that lends itself, I think, towards corruption and inefficiency. Secondly, maybe this guy was just really wrong for the job. But I also think the narrative questions are fair. That's my perspective. I, I don't know about you. I think it is fair to like pull some stuff away from this because um, clearly, mm-hmm. personnel issues aside, the, they were all accelerated. The sex question was like gasoline on the fire. Um, there were these like you can see in the story, there were these existing fissures. And then when they were forced to litigate internally whether or not they would take a stance 
on uh, all of the issues that you raised pertaining to biological sex, it crumbled. They couldn't do it without you know, being afraid to talk openly. Uh, that's just like pretty amazing takeaway. <laughs> Yeah, no, I th yeah, I think that's right. I think everybody should uh, re read the piece because it's, it, you, as you described it, I think that's right. It, it's, they tried to be the hetero, you know, these are heterodox thinkers. These are anti-tribalism uh, folks. And, and I think the reason the New Yorker was excited to do this story is because they, lo they love the delicious irony of the heterodox folks raising the question of how orthodox they need to be on a variety of different issues. And they, they quote somebody saying, you know, we tried to uh, fight tribalism and, and in doing that, we formed our own tribes. And it, I think it is a reflection of where we are today in our kind of social uh, construction that everybody is you know, retreating into their, their different tribes. And if you don't, you kind of just get uh, rip, ripped, ripped apart and pieces of you go in every direction. Uh, agree. And just really quickly before we wrap, I would say um, that's why I, it's just a breakdown in social trust. You know, even people who can find common political cause can't organize and trust each other um, in, I think, a, a high tech social media panopticon, a panopticon environment in the way that they used to, you know, say even 20 years ago. And secondly, uh, just a quick question before we run. Did this remind you of your story from last year uh, that that saw just like leftist groups being paralyzed by that breakdown in social trust? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, you had di different, different kind of tools and weapons that were being used internally uh, by the combatants in the office politics, just because those are tools that are, you know, constructed out of whatever, whatever your particular politics are. Uh, but the, the methods and uh, the machinations were, were all, all basically uh, the same. Uh, so yes, you, you're, and I think you're seeing some of this on the right as well, uh, in, you know, with, uh, you know, a lot of church groups are, you know, break, uh, church organizations kind of, uh, in turmoil with everybody accusing each other of being kind of too woke or, or to have, have embracing, you know, crypto DEI type tendencies and using, you know, whatever the language is, whatever the ideology is that kind of your organization is organized around, you then grab the, the mantle of the purity of that, and then and you beat up your in, internal enemies. And so I think the left kind of pioneered that over the last ten years or so. But I think you're going to see it in organizations like Fair and everywhere else. I mean, you you know right wing organizations a lot better than I do. But have you have you started noticing uh, that you're seeing people kind of accuse each other of kind of crypto wokeness? Uh, that you know if if when in reality they're just kind of expressing uh, power struggles for, you know, for dominance of the organization. It's definitely in the churches. Um, I don't know that, I, I feel like wokeness is a litmus test on the right in general now. So even like kind of like Spencer Cox, the governor of Utah, when he gave his preferred pronouns on a Zoom call with students, I mean, that was, well, he, he was just discredited by basically everybody in the right as soon as he did that. So I think it's generally a litmus test like on the political right, but uh, in cultural spaces like churches, for instance, um, I think you definitely, definitely, definitely see it. So it's not an issue that is going anywhere at all. We have some news on the uh, case of, of Julian Assange. So for a while, there's been a lawsuit uh, that's been going on that people may or may not be aware of. Uh, where a group of attorneys and journalists are suing 
the CIA and also suing a, a former CIA head, uh, Michael Pompeo, for basically illegal uh, surveillance uh, and searches within the Ecuadorian embassy. There's been some incredible uh, new revelations uh, from the Spanish news organization El Pais that they are now including uh, in, in a new filing uh, opposing basically the CIA's attempt to get this case thrown out of court. Uh, and first of all, wanted to show some of the surveillance footage. You can roll this uh, just kind of in the background. This is this is the footage that the that a, a contractor who was working for the Ecuadorian embassy you know, had access to. And we now know uh, that that contractor had uh, had connections to the CIA and that the CIA was able to exploit their relationship um, with with this contractor to, to constantly surveil uh, not only Assange, uh, but other people uh, who came into uh, who came into the embassy, uh, one of which was was me at one point. I wonder if there's footage of me when I when I interviewed Assange. <laughs> Uh, they're just just want, just wandering around that embassy. Uh, people can find this on I think it's on El Pais's. You can find a fuller video on El Pais's uh, YouTube page, and it, it does give you a real look at uh, the Ecuadorian embassy that he was living in uh, for years. Uh, and I was startled when I went there because it's this basically a railway apartment in in London that looked to be only two or three bedrooms. Uh, and maybe one or two bathrooms and that that little living room area that you see. Uh, and he, he, not only was he there for years, but so was the Ecuadorian embassy staff. Just just an in, incredible situation uh, that uh, and he wasn't able to leave for anything, which is because if the second he would have left, he would have been picked up. So it, it's it, which must be you know psychologically torturous to know that if you need medical attention, that that is it for you. Like you're not going to make it even to the hospital. Uh, before before you're uh, before you're detained, uh, but so the, the new piece of information uh, that emerged is that the 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 CIA or, or this contractor was supposed to turn over um, uh, you know all uh, all all of its data from uh, uh, various kind of electronic equipment. Uh, there was a technical problems. So the judge ordered them to try again, and when they when they did it again, and we can put up this El, El Pais article. Uh, they accidentally uh, shared what well, they were supposed to do it, but I think that they were trying not to share it, a file uh, that is listed as CIA, like the, the, the file, like the direct file. It's just it's just named CIA. <laughs> and so uh, R Richard Roth of the Roth law firm, who's who's representing the plaintiffs, um, he said in a, in, a, in a comment to me, he said these startling new revelations, as reported by El Pais, demonstrate that UC Global unlawfully surveilled unknowing Americans when they met with Assange. The initial concealment and then revelation of this new information, if true, is proof that the plaintiff's claims are legitimate. The CIA's motion to dismiss should either be denied or plaintiffs should be allowed uh, to replead to bring in these new facts. So literally, uh, they busted this contractor with a file uh, called CIA uh, while they have you know all sorts of other evidence that they were that the CIA was working. Meanwhile, Emily, uh, what are you what are you taking a look at? What's your point? 
I'm also talking about uh, things related to the surveillance state today because it's a, sort of inescapable. Um, I wanted to do a breakdown on the question of this FBI whistleblower that's being sort of ping-ponged around in the media. It's really hot in conservative media, but I think a lot of people don't know to know exactly what to do with it because Democrats and Republicans um, in the House of Representatives have come away with different ideas uh, after they've they viewed this document that's at the center of the whistleblower controversy um, on the Senate side, too. They've come away with just different ideas of what's actually going on here. So with Republicans uh, led by James Comer actually saying this week that uh, he's Comer is the head of the House Oversight Committee. He said that they're going to convene contempt of Congress hearings for FBI Director Christopher Wray later this week um, over his unwillingness to provide the committee with this this document. So the basics here, um, just to go just to go up to this thirty thousand foot level, is that there is a, a document from an FBI whistleblower um, that has information was given by a confidential human source to the FBI. And I'm reading from The Federalist here, a story by Margot Cleveland uh, over at uh, the, the Federalist. This is a quote from Margot. Um, regarding, this is a that form dated June 30th, 2020. So this is an FD 1023 form, included detailed information from a confidential human source to the FBI regarding an agreement by now President Biden to deliver preferred foreign policy positions for a $5 million payment. It's an absurd possible. I mean, and not it's it's not an absurd possibility, but it's an absurd uh, allegation. Not that it's absurd in the realm of being implausible or being anything like that, but it's ripped straight from the pages of a novel or from a movie, basically. Um, that you would have a president of the United States, a former vice president, a longtime senator, just taking money for foreign policy positions. But the reason this is so important. Um, and the reason that Republicans are right to demand this form is because of what we talked about last week, the Durham report. I really see this as a coda to everything in the Durham report where it says, basically, Durham, I think, really in, in great detail showed that James Comey, uh, Peter Strzok, everyone who was working on the Crossfire Hurricane investigation into the allegations of Russia collusion applied an incredibly different standard to Donald Trump than they did to Hillary Clinton, meaning they subjected claims about Clinton's alleged corruption to much higher scrutiny than they did claims of Trump's collusion with Russia. So if, if Hillary Clinton was alleged to have the server and did she know about it? Did she not know about it? How was this involved? They were going to subject any claims about that to a really high level of scrutiny because uh, actually, as you see them saying in emails, Durham saw, they we're like, well, she's probably the next president of the United States. We don't want her to turn on the DOJ or the FBI. Um, and that really informed the way they went about the investigation into her private server. Whereas with Donald Trump, um, they were, A, as Kevin Kleinsmith did, he was actually, he pleaded guilty to this, uh, fudging information to surveil uh, campaign volunteers, advisors. So it was a, a definitely a double standard. And that's why Republicans, this is Chuck Grassley, um, he, Chuck Grassley goes on Fox News last week and says, we aren't interested. This is a really interesting quote. We aren't interested in whether or not the accusations against then Vice President Biden are accurate. Well, that seems so ridiculous. And the media has run with it and said, what do you mean you're not concerned about whether they're accurate? Bill Hemmer asks, 
How damning is this document to the sitting U.S. president? Grassley replies, I don't know. He stressed that while, this is from Margo, quote, there's accusations in the FBI report, the Congressional Oversight Committee's concern is whether, quote, the FBI does its job. That's what we wanted to know. That's what we want to know, Grassley said. An entirely fair question. This is the bottom line. That is an entirely fair question, given the mountains of evidence in the Durham report, the IG report that even James Comey himself uh, recently has been saying, you know, it did uncover some real problems in the FBI. This is critical. After all of that, after years of the, the Russia collusion investigation, after John Durham um, pulls out, I think, pretty clear evidence of a double standard, Chuck Grassley is right that this document is relevant, that Christopher Wray should turn it over, whether or not the allegations that a vice president, sitting vice president, took $5 million to change his foreign policy position. Um, Congress needs to perform its job and provide oversight. And the way to do that is to see the document on their own and to gauge the potential accuracy of it and to gauge whether or not the FBI, which had this document and is dated June 30th of 2020, and they have a confidential human source we know now was seen as, quote, highly credible. That's actually from what we know, that the FBI had a confidential human source they considered highly credible. Total contrast with Igor Danchenko, who they, uh, the, uh, Igor Danchenko, who they used as their confidential human source in Crossfire Hurricane. Again, I said this last week, my eyes glaze over when you talk about all this stuff. It is intentionally co confusing and complicated um, on the part of the, the FBI, the surveillance state, because they want your eyes to glaze over. It helps them get away with these things. But this whistleblower document is not nothing. It is not something the media should shrug at because Congress has a very real duty to ensure that the FBI is uh, per performing its role equally, that it's upholding the rule of law, um, and, and that it is using its vast, far too vast powers in a way that is at the very least responsible. Durham uh, gave us plenty of reason to doubt that the FBI is doing that. And uh, this this document is well within the purview of Cong Congress to take a look at. So with that, Ryan, I wanna pivot to you on the question of the accuracy of the document. What Chuck Grassley is saying I think is important, but then also whether or not the document is accurate is ultimately the key question. It sounds sensational and absurd that Joe Biden as a vice president would be like, Yes, the price for my foreign policy position is $5 million. Um, so take that for what you will. Highly credible, confidential human source. I don't know exactly what that means in the standards of today's FBI. Um, what do you make of the, the sort of central claim of the document? Uh, we mentioned this at the top of the show, but you landed a really big interview that we're super excited to bring to the Counterpoints and Breaking Points audience here today. Tell us a little bit about uh, what we can expect to hear from Imran Khan. Yeah, so extraordinarily important, you know, because the, the nation of Pakistan, it's a nuclear power with a population of 250 million people. It, today, you know, it's facing an existential crisis as the country's military establishment is rapidly consolidating power and cracking down on the most popular political party, which is known as the PTI, headed by for, former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Now, Khan is an unusual politician. Uh, he's gonna be our guest in, in just a moment through a pre-taped interview. And for decades, Khan was the nation's most famous cricketer uh, before transitioning into the, there's, there's Khan uh, wrapping a cricket ball or whatever the word is for what he's doing there. Uh, before he transitioned into the world of philanthropy, he was he's well known in Pakistan for building hospitals, uh, for supporting universities. 
From there, he moved into politics, founding the PTI and sweeping into power as a populist in 2018. But he had a slim majority and he was ousted in a no confidence vote by April of 2022. Since then, he and his party have been the target of a relentless crackdown by the nation's military, which has ruled the country directly or indirectly for decades. Now, my earlier attempt, uh, if you remember this, to schedule an interview with him was foiled when he was arrested on May 9th by the military and held for four days while the country erupted in protests, after which the Supreme Court ruled his detention illegal. Some of the protests turned violent and directly targeted uh, officials, high officials in the military, and the military establishment responded by arresting most of Khan's senior leadership and forcing them to resign from the party under pressure. Now, thousands of rank and file party workers have also been jailed. Khan, meanwhile, is hold, holed up in his home in Lahore, sifting through some 150 charges of corruption and other offenses that have been leveled at him, charges he and his supporters dismissed as politically motivated. Yesterday, there were suggestions that they're even going to uh, charge him perhaps with murder. Uh, yet Khan remains a popular political figure heading into elections that are scheduled at least uh, for October. We'll see if they actually happen. So uh, in the interview, uh, and actually I can, I'll, we could play some of this interview now and then we can come out and talk about it. So here is, uh, here's Imran Khan. Were you interrogated? Were there any, any threats, direct or veiled, uh, made about your, your future role in Pakistani politics? I think they know me, you know, this country knows me for 50 years. I mean, for 20 years, I was, I was a leading sportsman in this country and cricket is the biggest sport and I was captain for 10 years. So I was in the media for a long time, and then I went into philanthropy and built the, uh, uh, the biggest charitable institution, which are cancer hospitals and then a university. So people know me for a long time. Uh, they know that I'm not going to back down. But what they're doing is, you know, I mean, they have clearly stated to me, the establishment, that whatever happens, you're not going to be allowed to get back into power. So um, what they're doing now is that they are, they are dismantling the party, but dismantling the biggest political party, the only federal party in Pakistan is dismantling our democracy. And actually that's what's going on. All the democratic institutions, the judiciary, it is, I mean, the judiciary today is totally impotent in stopping this violation of fundamental rights. The Supreme Court, we went to the Supreme Court According to the constitution, the elections in Punjab, the biggest province, which is 60% of Pakistan, was supposed to be held on the 14th of May. The government refused. So, I mean, even the Supreme Court orders are, are not listened to. The, the judges give, a, give people bail there. The police picks them up on some other cases. So this total violation of fundamental rights, which is going on, I think this is, it's all an attempt to weaken me and my party to the point that we will not know, not be able to contest the elections because all the opinion polls show that we will win a massive majority in elections. Out of the 37 by-elections, my party has swept 30 of them, despite the establishment helping the, the, the government parties. So therefore, they know that in a free and fair election, we will just sweep. Hence, all these efforts are being made to completely dismantle my party and weaken it to the point that it will not be able to contest elections. This is a dark moment for your country, uh, for your party, as you said, for you yourself personally. But I'm curious, what are you looking forward to? In, in a best case scenario, what's the path out of this crisis? It's like a crossroads. 
One road is leading back to the bad old days of military dictatorship, because that means, you know, we will regress. The whole movement for democracy, which gradually evolved over a period of time, our media really, I mean, struggled valiantly for their freedoms. And we had one of the freest medias. Uh, and then our, our, our judiciary, in 2000, our judiciary was always subservient to the executive. But in 2007, started a movement called the Lawyers Movement. And for the first time, we, the judiciary asserted its, its independence. So the, the whole pillars of democracy now are, 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 are being rolled back. The whole evolution, the this, this steady move towards a democratic country is now all at stake. So either we allow this to go where it is going towards a, a, a military dictatorship. The other is, you know, we all try and all the democratic forces get together and strive for getting back to rule of law, democracy and free and fair elections. As you confront uh, this potential long-term uh, military dictatorship, how does it make you think back on your own uh, support of the military in the you know the per uh, the coup of Pervez Musharraf, or or having the military's you know indirect support in your own election. Do you feel like there was a way to accomplish that without uh, the military, or is Pakistan in a situation that there, that reform is only possible through that institution? Well, you know, just to uh, make a correction, mine is the only party that was never manufactured by the military. Uh, People's Party, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, he served a dictator for eight years before he formed his party. The, the other, the second party is PMLN. The, the, the head of PMLN was actually nurtured by General Zia's dictatorship. I mean, he was a non-entity, so he was actually a product of his military dictatorship. Mine is the only party for 22 years from scratch I started and actually broke through a two-party system. In the 2018 election, the army didn't oppose me, but they didn't help us in winning the elections. The elections weren't rigged because it should be now obvious. Now, despite the, the army, the, the, the establishment standing behind these governments, we've swept 30 out of 37 by-elections. And all opinion polls show that we are way ahead of everyone, almost 60 to 70% rating. And, and the other thing I want to say is, how is it different? When Ayub Khan, the first military dictator, took over, the majority of the population backed him because at that time we were very insecure and the army was the bastion of security. When Ziaul Haq uh, deposed Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, uh, the second military dictator, half the population supported him. Half the vote was for Bhutto, but half the vote went against him. When General Musharraf, wound up our democracy in 99, he had 80% rating in Pakistan because he came on an anti-corruption platform. But this is a unique time in Pakistan. The almost the entire country is standing now for democracy. There are no takers for military dictatorship anymore. So it's a unique situation because we, our thought process has evolved to the point now where there's a consensus in Pakistan that a bad democracy is better than uh, military dictatorship. It feels like the military may see this crisis and this conflict as existential for them, that given what you've said, that the country 
the population has now turned against them. If they lose power, they may be pushed off the stage uh, in, entirely. And so cornered, that you may that may explain some of the reaction uh, that you're seeing. So how do you how do you navigate uh, that situation where they currently have you literally and and politically surrounded? Uh, but if you escape, they face an existential crisis. When I was in three and a half years in power, I mean, I recognized that, you know, you can't wish away the military. You know, you have to work with them because they've been entrenched for 70 years. Directly or indirectly, they've ruled this country. So I worked with the army chief. And apart from the fact that he would not, he did not understand what rule of law meant or didn't want to understand. Apart from that, we sort of, you know, we had a working relationship. When and why he decided to pull the rug under my feet, I still don't know. I mean, at what point he decided that this is, you know, uh, I was dangerous to the country. Why he, he decided to change horses? Because he uh, backed the current prime minister who was facing massive corruption cases. And so why he decided to do that I think my hunch is that he wanted an extension and, and, the, and the, the, the current prime minister had promised him that. I guess that's the reason. But um, really, he's the best. he would know why. I don't know why. So my point is, you know, the way Pakistan has been run, a hybrid system, it just cannot be run like this anymore. We are now facing the worst economic crisis in our history. And my point is that, you know, when I've said, uh, I've, I've offered talks to the, to the military, I've said, look, to the army chief, but so far uh, there's no response. My point is that the hybrid system cannot work any longer because if a prime minister has the public mandate and the responsibility to deliver, he must have the authority. He can't have a situation where he has the re responsibility but the authority, most of the authority lies uh, with the military establishment. So a new equilibrium has to be made. You have to have some sort of an arrangement where you know, certain issues just have to be delivered in Pakistan. You, Pakistan cannot do without rule of law now because we cannot get out of this economic mess unless we attract uh, investment. But investment from abroad does, does, does not come to a country where people do not have confidence in their justice system, in the legal system, in their contract enforcement. And therefore, they go, Pakistani go and invest in Dubai and in other countries. But they don't invest in this country. We have, we have 10 million Pakistanis. If we could only get 5% of them investing in this country, we wouldn't have any problems. But the pro but they, they do not have faith in our justice system. We are out of the 140 countries in, in the rule of law index, Pakistan is 129th. So with that sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lack of rule of law, I'm afraid the country's survival is at stake. So hence, a new equilibrium has to be made with the military establishment. Final question. I, I know you said that you believe that the driver of your ouster was was clearly internal and not driven from out, outside. But I'm also curious, given that the U.S. expressed its private approval for, uh, for, you to, for you to be pushed out of office through a no-confidence vote, 
I'm wondering what it was that you think uh, drove the United States to that position. Do you think it had something to do uh, with your willingness to work with the Taliban after the Taliban took over? Do you think it had something to do with the the war in Ukraine? Or what? It, what is your read of the geopolitics that would have led the United States uh, to go from supportive uh, to willing to see you thrown out? Well, for a start, you know, the war Trump administration acknowledged that I was the one who consistently kept saying there was not going to be a military solution in Afghanistan. It's because I know Afghanistan, I know the history and uh, the, uh, the province, the Pashtun province. Remember, Afghanistan has 50% Pashtuns, but uh, the, the Pashtun population is twice as much in Pakistan. And my province, where, where I first got into power, is, is the Pashtun province bordering Afghanistan. So I kept saying there would not be any military solution. Trump administration acknowledged it. And they finally, when, when he decided to the withdrawal, he understood there was not going to be a military solution. But I think this was taken wrong by the Biden administration. They somehow thought I was critical of the Americans and I was uh, uh, so, sort of pro-Taliban. It's total nonsense. It's just simply that anyone who knows the history of Afghanistan just knows that you will, they, they have a problem with outsiders. So the same happened with the British in the 19th century, the Soviets in the 20th century. Exactly the same was happening with the US. But it, it's just that no one knew that. And so I think that was one reason. Secondly, I was anti the war on terror in Pakistan. Because remember, Pakistan, Pakistan, first of all, in the 80s, created the Mujahideen. Mujahideen who were conducting a, a guerrilla warfare against the Soviets. So it was from Pakistani soil. And we, we told them that doing jihad, jihad means fighting foreign occupation, is, 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 is uh, your heroes. It is, a, you know, we encouraged it. Now come uh, 10 years later, once the Soviets had left, the US lands in Afghanistan. You're told that this was, uh, this was heroism to fight foreign occupation. How are you going to tell them that now that the Americans are there, it's terrorism? So that's what happened. The moment we joined the US war on terror, they turned against us. 80,000 Pakistanis died in it. I mean, Pakistan, no ally of US has taken such heavy casualties as Pakistan did. And in the end, we couldn't help the US either because we were trying to save ourselves. There were 40 different militant groups at one point uh, working against the government. Islamabad was like under siege. There were suicide attacks everywhere. We had no investment coming in the country. Well, our economy tanked. So I think my opposition to the war on terror also was perceived as being anti-American, which is not. It's just being nationalistic about your own country. And with Taliban, I mean, when the Taliban took over, Frankly, whichever government is in Afghanistan, Pakistan has to have good relationship with them. We have a two and a half thousand kilometer border with them. We have three million Afghan refugees here. And uh, when the Ghani government, before that, I went to Afghanistan, uh, Kabul to meet him. I invited him to Pakistan. We tried our best to have good relationship with them. So whoever is in power in Afghanistan, Pakistan has to have good relationship because at one point, during the previous government, there were three different terrorist groups uh, using Afghan territory to attack Pakistan. The ISIL, Pakistani Taliban, and the Baloch uh, Liber Liberation 
organization. Three different groups were attacking us. So therefore, you need a government in Afghanistan which, which would be helpful. So it was not pro-Taliban. It's basically pro-Pakistan as any, anyone who cares about his country would, would make those decisions. For a full transcript of my interview, you can find that over at theintercept.com. You can listen to the entire uh, interview over at my Intercept podcast, which is called uh, Deconstructed. In that interview, he made uh, claims against former uh, Pakistan ambassador to the United States, Hassan Haqqani, uh, Hussein Haqqani, my apologies. Uh, and I reached out to him for comment. He denied uh, Khan's allegation that he had lobbied uh, the United States against Khan. I also reached out to the State Department uh, for comment, and I will read that here. The State Department says, quote, our message has been clear and consistent on this. We support the peaceful upholding of constitutional and democratic principles, including respect for human rights. We do not support, whether it's in Pakistan or anywhere else around the world, one political party over another. We support broader principles, including the rule of law and equal justice under the law. On the war on terror and the Taliban, the United States and Pakistan have a shared interest in ensuring the Taliban live up to the commitments that they have made that terrorist groups that may be active in Afghanistan are no longer able to threaten regional stability. Emily, Imran Khan, fascinating political figure, and in some ways kind of, I would think, maybe an ideal populist uh, right candidate that uh, you guys might wish you had somebody like that uh, over here in the United States. Fascinating. And just, uh, I think your interview really brought the uh, that side in Imran Khan to the forefront because it's also a personality thing. Um, and mm. the, the sort of politics that he espouses, then to see that translated through, uh, I think the political personality is just a, it is a very interesting combination. He's such an important international figure uh, that gets, I think, probably too little attention on the world stage. He's, he's probably one of the more, if you follow foreign policy stuff, I mean, people know his name, mm -hmm. but uh, his, his central importance to world politics right now, I think is disproportionate to the media's interest in his story. So I, th I thought that was a fantastic interview and I'm so glad that you were able to bring it to the audience here. And, and just a small process note, uh, folks can imagine how uh, ugh, interesting it was for you to negotiate getting an interview with somebody who is in a position like Imran Khan. I mean, you can see it like in the, in the internet a little bit, you can see it in um, just uh, some of your questions, not a diff not an easy interview to land, but also just not an easy interview to make happen when you have so many obstacles, political obstacles to just like using the internet and talking to journalists. <laughs> yeah, and I think part of it is that he's so constricted in Pakistan uh, that one of the few uh, avenues for him left is to start doing these kind of international interviews. So I think the, our ability to kind of get him had, you know, had to do with how cornered he is uh, politically back home. Um, so next week, we'll be back in our uh, brand new studio. I was in uh, Boyertown, Pennsylvania, uh, for my cousin Laney Grimm's uh, high school graduation this weekend and met uh, a guy named Justin, uh, who was, uh, uh, maybe he's watching now, he's a big CounterPoints fan. I was able to show him pictures of the, of the studio, and he's like, wow, I didn't even have to pay for this. <laughs> um, and so everybody's going to get to see the new studio next week. What's what's your take on what you've seen so far? I think it's amazing. And thank you so much to the viewers who make it possible. Um, it's, you know, I, I think it's, Sagar always makes a really important point about uh, the, why we need to, um, you know, take on 
you not just be someone, you know, sort of broadcasting from their basement with an Xbox headset. Um, I don't mean that uh, to be offensive at all, but like we're here in DC and uh, there are people because of the rise of independent media who are going to have conversations with uh, the Breaking Points team. And you're going to see some of those big names next week. And uh, the, the new set design is just a, a real elevation that I think is going to allow Breaking Points to keep growing and to, to draw big names, more viewers. Uh, so we're just beyond grateful to to all of you and so excited for you to see it. Yeah, and we could keep the bricks around and still do uh, kind of moonlight with an open mic comedy night or something in, in Washington, D.C. <laughs> It'll be like uh, how, you know, various mu museums have different pieces of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. We'll, give, <laughs> we'll give different places a Except slice like, wait, of the these are wall. Wait, these are fake bricks. God, this is outrageous. <laughs> we could have just poked holes in it the whole time. Yes. All right, well, we'll see you there in studio next week. See you Thanks soon. Thanks for watching, everyone. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.